Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 306, and I had a conversation with Mara Edelman. She's a medical provider, a sexologist, and she is the co-host of the upcoming podcast, Are We There Yet? She and I had a fantastic conversation. I love her. She's a dear friend. We had a big time. We went all over the map in conversation. I do want to mention uh, one of the things we talked about. Uh, There was a car accident conversation that we had, and I want to make it clear that the driver of the car who passed away was not drinking. He was picking up the two girls who were drinking. So he himself was not a drunk driver. I just wanted to make that clear. I think that's an important distinction. Other than that, there is conversation about sex on this show, so heads up about that. And it's a really, it's a fun ride. I giggled throughout the editing of this episode. I just, I had a, a great time revisiting it. I think you're gonna love Mara. She's, she's fantastic. I wanna let everybody know that on Saturday, the 9th, I am going to be in Prestonburg, Kentucky for the Appalachian Arts and Entertainment Awards. I'm very excited. They've asked me to present the best original song and to perform my song, When I Sleep, during their In Memoriam segment of the show. You can watch the red carpet event live on Saturday evening at facebook.com slash theappyawards, T-H-E-A-P-P-Y-A-W-A-R-D-S. If you want to get tickets to the Prestonburg, Kentucky show, it is, again, Saturday, April 9th, and you can get tickets at macarts.com. That's M-A-C-A-R-T-S.com. Now, if you aren't in the vicinity and can't get tickets or whatnot, yes, you can watch the Red Carpet Live event that evening on the 9th, or uh, once it's been recorded and all that, it's gonna be shown on television, uh, on cable television, I believe on one of the country music networks. So I'll get more information about that, but anyone will be able to see it and I'll post it on on my SusanRuth.com website so you can check it out. I also want to mention, I was recently on the Unconventional Life podcast, episode 310, it's The episode is called Connecting Humans Through the Art of Storytelling, and you can find that on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And shout out to Jules for having me on the show. It was a lot of fun. Okay, in other news, check out Hey Human Podcast on social media under Facebook and Instagram. You can check out my personal social media, Susan Ruthism, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. Go to heyhumanpodcast.com and find the links page. Every episode has a pile of links that I've put together for you so you can do your deep diving from one spot. And it'll be lots of information about my guests and things we've talked about and all that good news. Old episodes of Hey Human are on heyhumanpodcast.com. iTunes and a couple of the other podcast hosts only allow for 300 episodes to show at a time. That doesn't mean the other episodes don't exist. You can still deep dive from the very beginning of the series by going to the official website, which again, heyhumanpodcast.com. Rate and review and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the YouTube channel, Official Susan Ruth, and you can watch videos there, subscribe there, that's super helpful. Uh, for the algorithms and also for ads and all that kind of stuff, which even though Hey Human podcast is ad free, YouTube shows ads and they keep all the money unless you have, I think, a thousand subscribers. So let's beat them at their own game, shall we? (laughs) Um, Go to SusanRuth.com to check out all the other stuff about me, interviews, my art, my music, and sign up on the mailing list on that website. And speaking of music, if you dig it, go and find Susan Ruth on iTunes or Amazon Music or Spotify or wherever you like to listen to your music. Search for All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. That's my most recent album. And check that stuff out. If you'd like to help support Hey Human and keep it ad-free, check out the Contribute button on heyhumanpodcast.com. Every bit helps and super supportive and I appreciate it. 
So between that and rating and reviewing, it really does keep pushing momentum forward on the show. Okay, that's about it. I'm excited about this episode and for you to meet Mara. She's fantastic and it was a lot of fun. So without further ado, stay safe, be well, be kind, and thank you for listening. Here we go. Mara Edelman, welcome to Hey Human. Hello, Miss Susan. It is so good to see your pretty face. It's good to see you too. I'm really happy that you said yes to being on the show. It only took a couple times. Well, no, it took more than a couple times. (laughs) (laughs) So we met in such a wonderful happenstance moment. I was uh, up north in California and I had found this yummy little breakfast place and it was packed the day that I went in and I wanted to sit outside because it was still COVID times. And uh, the woman's like, oh, sorry, there's, there's no seating outside. And the stranger with the two cutest dogs said, you can sit with me if you'd like. <laughs> and it was you. Isn't that amazing? What, I, made you, what made you do that? Honestly, it was like the numbers were coming down a little bit and I wanted to be outside. And I totally got that you wanted to be outside. And you just seemed... There was just, I don't know, your presence. I was like, oh, she seems cool. You were holding a book with a hat on. And and you said, oh, I love dogs. And I think the first thing I said to you is, are you vaccinated? And you're like, are you vaccinated? (laughs) And then we had a nice breakfast together. It was amazing. And they had music outside. I think part of it is I just didn't want you to have to not get to sit outside where it seemed so cool because I just put the dogs out there. Yeah. And I loved your, I love your dogs. They're great. I, I think you came back outside and I don't remember who's who, but one of them was in my lap. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think we've talked like at least a couple times a week since then. Oh yeah. Like, it's, it's funny how you meet people sometimes and you're like, Oh, there you are. I've known you my whole life. Yeah. That, that yeah. thing. I, I just call them the moments of serendipity and they are actually my favorite moments in life. It's like the universe is saying, Hey, you two should meet. Yeah. It's so yeah. great. Yeah. Oh. What a, what a wonderful thing. Anyway, so yay. Thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me to sit with you for breakfast. It might have just changed our, uh, all, lots of things, right? That's, that's uh, the universe is in charge. Absolutely. And I remember one of the uh, people in the band was pretty cute. And, oh, and, we that's right. that. and so we were talking about what it's like for women to just sort of be bold and go up and ask somebody for their number, give their number. And remember, we had that whole conversation. And then I think it's an interesting thing about finding that confidence to just go up to someone and say, you know what, I find you attractive. Here's my number. If you are interested, call me. But why is that so scary? It's so hard. But remember, I totally chickened out. So I went up there and gave him a tip in the thing and just kind of smiled at him and thought I can always find him on on like social media later. But it was also weird times. We were just still kind of, I mean, I don't even remember what wave that was. We were kind of coming down from a wave. And I just was like, you know, as a medical provider, I, I was just trying to keep it close to the vest still. Oh, absolutely. Okay, let's uh, let's get into you, my dear. Uh, where were you born? Where are you from? What was upbringing like? Oh, where was I? So I'm actually in my house right now in Santa Rosa, and I was born in Santa Rosa, but I have been gone for 28 years. I've only been back here for a year, and I'm so glad to be home. They say like you can't ever go back home, but it's true. Things are different, and but you can always go back home. It feels like home here, and. Uh, I was born in Santa Rosa, actually 47 years and 364 days ago, because tomorrow's my birthday. And it was an interesting birth. Um, My mom went into labor two two months early, and the doctors weren't that worried. You know, two months is not too bad, even 48 years ago. But all of a sudden, my twin sister is born, and they didn't know she was having twins. And she had what's called an emphalocele, so um, almost like the stomach muscles and lining haven't closed around the intestines. And a lot of times there can be like a bag that kind of holds that in, but that had burst. And so not a hospital set up for that at all, for especially 48 years ago. And she was getting revived and taken care of and eventually sent to UCSF to be in an incubator for three months. And all of a sudden, 15 minutes later, my mom's like, whoa, something's happening. And here I come. Uh, it was it was a lot. I, I was in an incubator in one hospital in Santa Rosa, my sister in the other, my parents trying to go back and forth. They said they had this old van and the electrical system kept failing on the bridge. Like, it just sounds pretty torturous way to have your first children, right? So I'm just glad my sister's okay. 
Did you have that twin bond with her the way so many twins do where you have your own secret language and the knowing that they say happens? Let, uh, not like that, like thing. I, that we do. Sometimes we'll show up even to this day. It'll happen this weekend. I'm sure we'll be wearing similar outfits or we like show up and, and, or the phone rings and I know it's going to be her, but I guess I cried a lot when they brought her home because I was home for a couple months before they got to bring her home. I thought I was an only child. And we had it, we were up and down. We were best friends and then we fought a lot. And then we were best friends. You know, it's the twin thing. Imagine it's your first day of high school and you're both in a small bathroom trying to curl your hair at the same time and losing your shit. And you've got somebody else right there doing the exact same thing. We have all the same friends. We still do to this day. We get to hang out with a bunch of them um, tomorrow night. Friends since grade school. So... You know, it's interesting being a twin. Well, no, it's interesting to me that, you know, you are twins. You spend nine and a half, nearly 10 months or whatever it is together uh, in utero. And then something happens and one of the twins is whisked away. And then you spend all those months not being in each other's orbit when you've had all that time together. I know. Do you think that causes some sort of a weird prenatal abandonment issues? I I think that's where, you know, it starts from birth. All these issues that we carry, you know, our attachment styles and our abandonment issues and our, yeah. And um, she actually has medical trauma. So like, we'll go, let's go get our Botox and she's getting poked and she, it's very painful for her. And for me, I can barely feel it, but that's because she'd had some hospitalizations in our thirties because of her stomach. And like, you know, when you're poked and prodded a lot, you feel that. I think you've gone through that. Like pain is different for you sometimes. I, for me, it's the, I have a very high tolerance for pain because I've had to go through so many procedures. And That's interesting. So she kind of, I, I think it depends on, on your person. Mm. Um, but she, yeah, you know, she yeah. almost died a couple times when she was younger. So I'm just yeah. glad she's here. Yeah. Were you always intrigued by medicine? My mom was a nurse. And so a lot of it came from watching her. I remember we were young and we were doing a lot of construction on this property that we had bought out in the country and somebody cut their fingers off with a, with a, a hacksaw. Right. And I watched my mom very calmly go get a bag of ice, put the fingers in the eyes, put the seats down in the back of her car, get him into the back of her car, wrap his hand and take off for the hospital. So calm. Like I was like, that's badass. I want to be like that. Right. Um, and then unfortunately, I mean, we had such an idyllic childhood. Like we grew up in the country running around playing in creeks and all of this stuff. And when my twin and I were seven, our brother was born and he was like my baby. I was like, give me that baby. I'll change his diaper. Like I got the pee in the face, changing diapers. Like he was my thing. Unfortunately, when we were 11 and he was five, he was diagnosed with ALL, which is acute lymphoblastic leukemia. I still get choked up when I say it. It was really hard. Like we're 11 years old. And he goes, he was playing on a, a jungle gym and got his leg bruised. My mom killed, kicked herself for so long that she ignored it for like a week. His bruising wasn't quite healing right. So she takes him to the doctor a half hour from the house and they do some blood work. By the time she gets back home, they're like, you need to pack and you're going to UCSF. And I don't think they left for like six months. It was brutal. So it still chokes me up. It's pretty, you know, it's been <laughs> lots of years, but It completely changed the trajectory of our childhood, right? Because my twin and I are 11 years old and my parents are at the hospital. And all of a sudden we're kind of, we went and lived with my friend, Cindy, who is still best friend and her parents. And they took good care of us. Um, But it was hard. All of a sudden my family's gone and I wanted to see my brother. And so I think going back to the medicine piece, I went and stayed at the Ronald McDonald house near UCSF with my mom for like a month or so, I think. And I remembered watching all these little kids running around and radiation marks on their heads for their radiation treatments. And, and it didn't scare me. I, I kept remembering these kids are fucking resilient, man. And I read a bunch of books at that time about kids with cancer and how they can like know that they're dying, but they don't want to tell their parents because their parents are losing it. Right. So it definitely, I remember thinking around 11 or 12, I want to work with kids with cancer and it's not what I ended up doing, but I think it also fueled the medicine piece. Um, I remember my dad, my dad was a hero. Like, you know, my mom's keeping my brother alive. There was a 20% chance of survival back then if you had that diagnosis. And now it's like 80%. Back then it was like full body radiation, brain radiation. Um, To keep kids alive, you almost killed them essentially. And now it's a much better treatment. So they're in the hospital watching all these other families lose children. My dad tells a story of this dad walked out front, lit a cigar and said, yep, I'm not coming back. Like he just had enough. And here's my dad, who's a programmer, systems analyst at the time, working in the hospital room, making phone calls from the, you know, pay phone in the hospital, 
um, coming home and taking care of us and driving us to school. Like my dad is a sticker, man. He just does what needs to be done from the time he was a young man. Yeah. Mm. And so it changed my trajectory as far as like, I thought I want to be medicine. I want to work with kids and I want someday a man who is like my father who yeah. just, just stays and sticks and does. Right. It was, it was hard though. And our first job was definitely not medicine. We were so lucky. We grew up in a town with an amusement park. <laughs> it was called Jay's Amusements. And it literally was in the intersection of the end of my road and the end of my friend Cindy's road. And it was like, oh, the gates of heaven. You'd walk through these gates and the roundup and the water slide and the go-karts. And we all worked there from like 13 on as soon as we could get jobs. And it was where all of our friends congregated. So like we'd work and work the water slide with my friend Gina and my friend Cindy's giving us snack bars. And then we get off work and go out to the parking lot. Now, mind you, it's the 80s. <laughs> and we'd have styrofoam cups from the snack bar that we'd fill with beer from the kegs with all of our <laughs> friends in the parking lot. And then we'd go in and play play pool and sing like Sweet Home Alabama while we're smoking cigarettes inside at like 13. <laughs> but honestly, the most idyllic, we're lucky we're alive. Um, we did a lot of stupid stuff. We lost some good friends, including my my uh my really good friend Gina's boyfriend my sister and I were in the car with him and it rolled and he died we were up on a hill I still get emotional about these things you know the years well, later you still you that's still a lot of back. trauma that's so oh total trauma we were in the car it took an hour probably for somebody to hear us screaming and drive down this lady came and rescued us and then the cops came and and it was our best friend's boyfriend and he died and it was yeah you have guilt you have it's yeah and at the same time my parents, actually, I think by then, my brother was getting better. They were around more. I remember they were asleep and the cops said, go get your parents. Went upstairs, mom. <laughs> but as always, she calm, cool, collected. Were you drinking when the car accident happened? Um, We'd been drinking that night and it was like one in the morning and he was like, I'll drive you guys home. And he, him and, him and the, uh, my friend were having, you know, normal teenage dating issues. He's like, can we just drive and talk for a while? And we're like, sure. So we went up this long winding road where we used to go hang out on the top and have parties and hang with our friends and um, it was like two days after Christmas and he wanted to four wheel up this little hill Well, it was icy. And so we went up, we slid, we rolled, um, we, none of us had our seatbelts on. He flew out and got crushed by the car oh. and we didn't know that at the time. It was super dark. Um, crazy. Literally two days ago, I figured out why I'm claustrophobic. I'm going to tell all my girlfriends this weekend because we get in cars. I'm like, I don't put me in the middle. I, ew, I, like I need to be by a door. I've always been that way. I thought I'd always been that way. My counselor was like, well, when was the last time you sat in the middle of a car? And I went, holy shit. Um, I was in the middle. My sister was by the door and Wayne was there. And I remember feeling trapped as the truck is like circling. It took, takes till I'm 48 to figure out stuff. But the aha moments, no matter what age you are, are pretty good because then you understand stuff better, which is Absolutely. why I love medicine because I get to help people understand uh, so going back to like, so, you know, working at Jay's, fun times. And then I started working in preschools and daycares, um, family daycare at first and then preschools. And I went, you know what? Maybe not medicine. Maybe I'll be a teacher. I would love to work with young kids. And so I did that for a long time. Um, I was always boy crazy. So like having sex mm -hmm. at like 13, thinking that that was like the way, the thing to do. But I also remember getting ready for this talk. I remembered, I have to ask my sister. There was some guy friend that we hung out with. I swear we were in a bath together at like eight playing doctor and maybe at like 10 on a chair, like making out. I Boy crazy. From the time I was born to this day. Luckily, oh, yeah. hormones are slowing down a little. So that's actually a blessing. I <laughs> said <laughs> Danny, the, my, my parents' friend's kid, Danny, he and I used to play hypnotist in the closet. Ah, what would you do? I would hypnotize him and he would have to do what I say. And then he would hypnotize me and I'd have to do it. I, what oh, he <laughs> I'm going to do that when I'm dating somebody. I'm like, oh, honey, it's hip. It's tonight we're doing hypnotize game. <laughs> oh, I think I we were so like seven or eight also. Yeah. Really young. It's totally normal. Right. Of so course. now in my, in my adult job, I'm a physician assistant and I tell parents all the time, like at one, your child's probably going to walk. By five, they go to kindergarten and somewhere in their teenage years, they're going to think about wanting to have sex. So let's talk about it. Um, my parents weren't talking to us about it. And I don't know if that trajectory would have changed if my brother hadn't been sick. 
they were very good about modeling good behavior, but not so good about talking about it. But it was the 80s, you know. Well, that's interesting for a nurse mother. You would think she would be all over the discussion. Right? I've, so again, I mean, she spent five years trying to keep her kid alive. Yeah. And, trying, and then dealing with hell, 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 hell on wheels teenagers. So at 16, she... You know, they're back home all the time now. And all of a sudden there's a lot more rules. Before it was kind of like, keep your door open. You can have your boyfriends in there, but keep your door open. But then there was a lot more rules going on. And I remember one time like freaking out and she's sitting on me and I'm like, fuck you, get off of me. You can't tell me what to do. Like a lot of door slamming. And in retrospect, I mean, at the time I was like, leave me alone. I don't need you. But of course it was more like, I feel abandoned. I do need you. I hope looking back, slam the door. I would have, would have liked is coming in and saying, Hey, how are you doing? But I was a hell on wheels and she was still recovering from like never getting to take care of herself for five years. So I don't hold any kind of resentment. I don't, I mean, everything happened how it happened and that's makes you who you are. Right. Is your brother okay now? Yeah, he's doing really well. He's healthy. He's 40. He lives on, he's with my parents, which was a godsend living on that property still because he loves it there. And when my mom started to get more sick, he really, he quit working and he stayed home with her and he made sure she was okay. Um, I had sold my house and bought a house. And the day I uh, signed for this house, I signed her up for hospice. And it was just kind of a, it was a, it was a journey from there, you know, about six months to a year where, you know, my brother did everything from changing diapers and moving her around and bringing her food. And my 90 year old dad was driven crazy by the TV and commercials. And cause all of a sudden she's like, it's not the car we're going to buy. And as she got more and more confused, but they were rock stars, both of them. And so, yeah. Did your mom have Alzheimer's? We don't know. She started having like physical stuff, probably heart failure. And you can just have cognitive deficits from all of the, all of that stuff. And it came on pretty quick. Although she was hiding some stuff, but she had a fall and anesthesia. Lots of things add up to that. Plus her three whiskeys a night that she said were only two for a long time. Whatever it was, it, it just, her brain was going. It was I can't help but laugh at her sometimes though. So I'm on the phone with her and she goes, that's the guy I saved from the car accident. And I said, Oh, mom, what? I said, Oh, are you talking about Tiger Woods? She's watching the news and she goes, yeah, I pulled him out of his car and she fully believed it. And it would have been something she would have done in her heyday. Cause that's something we all do as medical people. Right. And she believed it. And so whatever it was, she actually was it a little happier, a little less pain and a little more fun, to be honest. (laughs) Um, So I'm glad I had that time with her. So it all worked out. I love that she truly believed she pulled Tiger Woods out of 100%. She also (laughs) believed she was going to buy the Acura on the TV and seriously drove my dad crazy. He's 90 and blind, but he listens to books on tape, philosophy and history and gets on his computer and does stocks and and instead, he's listening to inane television and Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> did your dad have diabetes? Why, why did he go blind? Uh, he had a retinal detachment in his 30s, so he only had one eye. And then as he got older, glaucoma, cataracts, different surgeries. Uh-huh. We all went to UCSF for the last Hail Mary, and he never got his vision back. But he's, got a, he's got, never complained once. He's a fucking trooper. I was like, if something happens to me, I'm going to be such a baby. I already know it. <laughs> so... Full circle is what all this was. Is like so. I realized one day when my mom was still alive, and we all kind of talked about it. I was like, "Wow, mom, when you turned forty, Aaron got sick, and you started taking care of my brother, right? And now he's turning forty next year, and he's taking care of you." And it was just like I had like one of those whoa moments. And then she died. Well, like uh, we had a big party at the house her birthday and other family's birthday. And you know she's in the hospice bed, and my twin got to come, and so we're all there and. <laughs> we're singing and doing stuff. And she goes, and me and my girlfriend, Cindy and Layla were standing above her and she goes, Shh. <laughs> and she shushed us. And she had otherwise been super incoherent all day, which was hilarious. And then it was her birthday. And then um, a week later, my dad turned 90 and she died on his birthday at three in the morning, which again, it all just felt very like, at first we're like, what a kick in the ass, mom. What's that about? It's his birthday. And then all of a sudden I was like, dad, she just wanted you to rest. You've been killing yourself. Like he slept pretty much his whole birthday. (laughs) And you know, it's horrible when people die, but watching the hospice experience and the nurses and how they were. And my mom who kept putting her hand out saying, grandma, help come get me. I just kept thinking there's something else we cannot all see. And I had never been that close to it. 
Um, yeah. So hospice nurses say it all the time. Every time somebody's on hospice, almost every time. Every You've time. talked about this on some of your podcasts. You know yeah. why. Yeah. I've interviewed a few hospice people and some people that have had near death experiences too. And yeah, it's a pretty common thread. Yeah. So all I can do is believe that when it's my turn, my mom's hand will be there and then I'm okay. Which as a medical provider, I hate death. So it's pretty funny. Like, I don't want to see it. I don't want to, you know, I want everybody to be whole and healthy. And death is like that final reminder that we have no control and our health is our most important priority, right? If we don't take care of our health, what is the point? Do you believe in God? I don't believe in God. We didn't grow up that way. I believe there is a universe and there's other things going on around us. And whatever God looks like, black woman, whatever, whatever anybody wants her to look like or him, that's what they can look like. Yeah. I believe in like the pagan, like the trees and the birds and all it's mystical more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so it all came full circle. Oh, and I forgot to tell you, I have not told you this and I'm not making it up for this whole thing. My mom's name was Susan. Oh, and I, I had this weird moment, like she made sure we met because <laughs> even though she hadn't passed away yet, the hospice nurse says there's sometimes more over there than they are here. And she'd been over there. And so maybe they can make things happen when they're over there. Who knows? I mean, definitely divine intervention, the, then, the, the yeah. series of events that had to happen in order for us to meet. Right. It's, I just like to believe because of yeah. the point otherwise with, you know. Um, well, I'm and the fact that we hit it off so well instantaneously, yeah. it was right. a no-brainer. Total no-brainer. Yeah. Like, it just works. It's yeah. like, uh, now can you find me a guy like this, please? Like, mm-hmm. It just kind of works because that would be fabulous. <laughs> I think they're out there. They're out there. Yeah. And okay. I, you know, it all, again, universe will decide these things, right? Yeah. And then I have a half-sister whose name is Ruth. So it's just really, yeah. Really? Yeah, it's crazy. So again, thank you, universe, for whatever. And at 18, I move out because I, I'm like, I'm not going to live at home anymore. And I have a boyfriend. So we move in together for a couple of years. And I did that stupid, like, cheat on him with an ex because I didn't want to be there. And I'm 20. And then I told him, of course, because the whole point was I wanted to blow up the relationship. I feel bad. It's still sorry for that one. Only time I did that because um, we learned from how shitty this stuff feels, right? And then I'm single. And I'm living alone and I meet this guy and he's got twin seven-year-olds and I'm like, they're so cute. So we move in together, buy a house, get engaged. I'm like playing mom, essentially, you know, they're with us part-time and I'm driving them to school and helping him. And, and it wasn't really working. And then there was some abuse towards the end. And I was like, you know, I got to go. It's time to go. But by then you're in love with the damn kids. Right. Right. That's brutal. Tricky. Did you, I think you had mentioned you'd done the thing. I've, yeah. I've dated guys with kids and you do fall in love with the children. I've stayed, tried to stay in contact with all of them, but some are more, uh, some are more receptive, I should say than others. Others, you know, it's, it depends on their age groups. It does. If, if they were yeah. super young and you were with them for quite a while, they tend to still be interested in finding out what you're doing and letting you know what yes. they're doing. And then yes. if they were a little bit older, they've just sort of, now they're doing their own lives and you were more of a blip, really. That's you know? such a good way of putting it. We uh, we stay in touch on Facebook, and I still talk to their mom sometimes. And yeah, but I mean, I was twenty. He also changed my life. So people come into your life for a reason. So he was a paramedic, and I was going to be a teacher, and I was taking all my you know education, you know, going to the JC, and I rode along with him on the ambulance, and I was like, oh shit, I love this. So I proceeded to take an EMT class and get hired on at the a small ambulance company in St. Helena, California, which that town is like the richest town on the planet, right? The, the, it was not as well run as it should have been, let's just say. So brand new EMT, um, working with other pretty much new EMTs. I think we might've had like one paramedic at some point and we would run calls up and down and up, you know, up to the lake and, you know, death, dying, car accidents, heart attacks, strokes, and we would get them get them in the rig and bust ass down towards Napa, towards the trauma center, the hospital. And the other local ambulance company had a paramedic. They'd pull over on the side of the street. The paramedic would jump in with us. <laughs> Again, this was, I don't know, 25 years ago, right? But it definitely drove by like, I can do this. I am like my mom. In the moment, I was able to stay super calm. Mm. Blood, guts, got this. I'd get to the hospital. And as soon as the family was involved. 
Um, I've, I'm too empathetic and sensitive for my own good. As soon as somebody came in crying, I would lose it. I'm like, hey, I got to get out of here. Like, but in the moment, I got that spill for my mom, and I was like, I better use this, right? Like, yeah, you're yeah. You're, you're amazing at what you do. Like, we all have to figure out what those skills are. What is the difference between your designation and some of the other designations of nurses and and doctors assistants and things? Oh, well, so as a physician assistant, um, you have to have had, it it, it got started after the Vietnam War. They realized all these paramedics and people that were in the war came home and didn't have a job. And so it's very similar to a nurse practitioner, um, pretty much does the same thing, um, which, so they came up with this PA program thinking, okay, you've got this experience. You just saved lives over there in Vietnam. Let's give you the two-year education. And now you can be a PA. For nurse practitioners, you have to be a nurse first. So they were nurses for a couple of years and then went to a nurse practitioner program. In the end, we all kind of end up the same. So we have nurse practitioners and physician assistants that work at my clinic. Uh, they, we do the same job. We essentially do a lot of the job. We do the same job that the doctors do. Most of us do. Uh, we all do at my clinic. Um, and so we see our own patients and diagnose and write prescriptions and order x-rays and studies and follow those people back up. And the only difference is, is when you're new, you're really checking in with a doctor a lot. Um, I've been doing this 18 years. And so I still do. Sometimes I, I have to make the call. Like I need, you know, I need advice on this, but after a while you kind of know what you're doing. Right. I mean, like any job where you're like, I don't need to check in anymore. I feel it's like too, the NPs and the, and the uh, PAs tend to, you bring up your empathy and how it's a detriment, but I think that they tend to have so much more empathy than the doctors. And they're really much more in my experience much more present to the patient than the doctors are. We hear that a lot. Um, Luckily, I work at a very large FQHC, which is a federally qualified health center. And essentially, we're working with underserved populations that are the sickest of the sickest and the, you know, they don't have finances that they need or the healthy food that they need. And so people that are driven to that kind of clinic work have to be empathetic or you don't survive. I mean, also, you have to protect yourself. We'll talk about that a little bit, the compassion fatigue and the COVID. But I, get, I'm, I work with the most amazing group of people. And honestly, I felt like I found my tribe when I started working there. So when I left, um, I left the guy I was living with, with the kids, and it was like a free for all. I decided what I wanted to do for a living. I wanted to go to PA school. And in order to do that, I needed more experience. So I got hired in the emergency room in the trauma center as an ER tech. So, you know, everything from cutting off clothes and EKGs. And I got to see this guy's heart beating in his chest, like, rarely are there gunshots in Napa, but there were some gunshots and he had, um, you know, his chest cut open and they're wheeling him off to surgery. I'm like, whoa, that was his heart. Okay. Like it was interesting times. Um, but, and I definitely was like, I'm doing medicine. So I was applying for PA programs while I was working in the ER and I was single for the first time in five years. And oh, wow. Like I got, you to- slut. Oh! <laughs> I was like, I had, you know, the, the, what do you, what people do usually in their early twenties? Well, not everybody, but you know, I got to have sex and date a lot and, you know, tried out some threesomes and did, you know, just did, did what I wanted for the first time in my life, I think, because I went from my home to like, you know, trying to be, I would say you're definitely more sexually adventurous than I, we, at least in experiential matters. I think in my head, I'm a psychopath, but <laughs> in real life, in oh, real life, I don't I'm going to see that. some, I'm going to, I'll tell you more stories and someday we can see if we can get you to, to be more experimental in your older age. Uh, my first threesome. <laughs> that would be awesome. Oh my God. I will, I will help it any way I can to facilitate <laughs> that for you. Not with me though. So here's the problem. As I got older, I actually looked it up. There's a term demisexual, demisexual, which essentially means you need to have a connection to want to have sex. Well, I'm like that. I'm definitely yeah. like yeah. yeah, a lot of people, I think more women maybe than men, but probably I, I always thought it was say, uh, what is sapiosexual? Is it like, uh, that, and that's like, yeah, you fall in love with somebody's brain. Yeah, definitely. Which is different, a little different than connection, but very similar for you. Yeah. You're very brainy. So you're probably more sapiosexual than you are demisexual. Yeah. We'll see if there's a quiz out there somewhere where we can take it and find out what we are. But now I can't just go have random sex. And I'm in this new town and the COVID numbers are coming down and I'm doing all this online dating. And I'm like, damn it. I always thought what I wanted for my twenties and thirties was my abs back because I had spectacular abs, but I actually think I could just wish I could be a little more carefree. And yeah, once you're a medical provider, you don't get to really ever be a person again. Well, also, I think you probably have seen some stuff that makes you think, 
promiscuity, not that there's any judgment around it. That word alone comes with judgment, but just having uh, a freedom to have sex with whomever you want, you see what some of the consequences of actions that maybe aren't safe and things. Yeah, syphilis is on the uprise, let's just say. So yes, constantly checking labs on people. And you're right, very valid point. So part of it was right around 30 when I went to PA school, I was already kind of slowing down on all that because I was busy with school. And then I bought a house and got my first dog, Milo's. Oh, and he I was all of a sudden I was like, I can't stay out all night. I can't like bring some stranger back here. What if they don't like, what if they're mean to my dog? Like my whole life kind of changed. I was still. And actually in my thirties, it was really more about understanding it all. Like behind me, like every dating, like dating books, though, from the rules to like, you know, um, what's his name? Oh, um, Hendrix. Oh, I've got Hendrix. Yeah. Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. Oh, my, one of my favorites, um, which cracks me up. Who, why am I blanking? Ah, Right now, for those of you listening, she stood up and walked up to this giant bookshelf that has so many books on it. And I know that they are filled with relationships, sex, uh, medicine, emotional things, all all this stuff. She reads. Dr. Ruth. Okay, that, duh. It's because his picture's not on there. Mr. Steve Harvey. Act like a lady, think like a man. I like that one. <laughs> Act like a lady, think like a man. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, I, I spent don't know a lot of my thirties just trying to understand it. Cause I was like, why is this so hard? I can't figure this out. I can't figure out how to do it right. Nobody can seem to figure out how to do it right. Well, there's no such thing as right. That's why. I know. Well. Look, love, love, relationship, it's all choices. These are all active choices. I think yes. that there is a fallacy that once we get into some sort of situation, whatever it is, that that's all the work we have to do. But in fact, it's a daily practice. Oh, daily relationship practice. is a daily practice. Daily. And you're correct. There is no right. But there's right for yourself. Like there's that right. feeling of like, this feels correct, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. So Yes. And I heard this and I also listened to a bunch of podcasts. So there's this one guy who explains the castle theory and that's what you just talked about. So you've got you, you've got the person you're with, and then you're trying to build a castle together or the relationship together. And he talks about how you got to like put the turrets up and build the moat and you can't ever stop the upkeep or the maintenance or the castle falls down. And when one person's calling it in and like, how's the construction going over there, hon? That doesn't fucking work. Like you both got to be continuously building the castle or decide that you don't aren't building a castle and that that's okay too. I mean, that's again, so many variables. Well, thank you for me. I want to build the castle. Yeah. Lots of people just want to have the sex or have a friends with benefits or have whatever else works for them. Right. Well, you talked about this, your, your attachment style and my attachment style are very different and also different upbringings, of course, which. I love it that we're opposite and like almost everything. Oh, everything. It yeah. seems like I'm super anxious attachment style, which I think leads to a lot of the overthinking, the needing to read all the books, the needing to understand it better. Also, another aha moment I realized recently I freaking hate ambiguity. Well, duh, I spent five years of my life not knowing if what we were going to do that weekend as a family. You know, we'd be sitting there and my brother would spike a high fever and it's a back to the hospital. So <laughs> that upheaval means that I like things kind of to make sense and to be kind of yeah. structured. I would say that I don't like ambiguity either, but I'm very forthright for me. In fact, I've been accused of being Spock-like because I, I, I see things as I'm certainly live in a gray area about everything, but I call it radical honesty. And honestly, yes. if everybody just practiced that, Although I'm not always perfect at it, as you know, because because sometimes you just want to throw the phone across the room and be like, I'm not dealing with that. It's annoying and I'm done dealing with it. I've done with dealt with it so many times. Well, and that's that's valid, right? It's not about I don't think always having to have the conversations, but I think when you sit down to have them, you better be vulnerable. Yeah. Totally honest. Absolutely. And people have a really hard time with that. I was recently dating somebody who I, I actually met somebody in person and I really liked him. And it was like that feeling like your cells know each other from the minute I met him. And so, you know, hanging out and it was going in the right direction. And of course I got a little anxious and he got a little avoided and it kind of fell apart. But the bigger problem was, is I kept saying, well, tell me where you're coming from. 
talk to the radical honesty piece wasn't happening. And I was like, well, then this just doesn't work. Building a castle by myself, people, it doesn't work that way for me. I believe Um, in vulnerability like that. I I try my, my damnedest to be that way with all my relationships with my friends, my family, lovers, whatever, what have you. Cause it just, at this point in our lives feels like a waste of time. If, if you aren't like that. Yeah. And I get why people can't do it. I understand that completely. But for yes. me, what works is saying, I, I'm even okay with saying, I don't know what I'm feeling. And that's a valid oh, thing too. I'm honestly, I'm totally okay with that. With the caveat of, but I'm going to go try and figure it out and then we'll have a conversation. Right. Right. Like you can't just leave it on. You can't just or, leave it on. or figuring it out means if you want to stick around while I'm trying to figure it out, that's okay too. But Oh yeah, I just mean go away for a minute in your own head and figure yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah. Back. yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So on that note, so that led me to um, all of this led me to taking a sexology program. So I'm working in the clinic. I'm at year like ten, maybe working at my clinic, and I started having neck problems, um, and it was really bad, like constant migraines, losing days of work, going into work. And having to get like a shot of Toradol, which is like extra strength Advil for my medical assistant, laying down on the patient bed, going to puke and being like, okay, I got this. I'll see 22 patients today. It's already a hard enough job where you have to be fully on and your brain fully on. And I was not holding it. I mean, I was doing my best, but, and then I kept saying, I think the computers are causing it. And 10 years, you know, back then, whenever that was eight years ago, there weren't ergo. Nobody really thought of overuse injuries. Um, my IT guy was kind of nasty. There's no way computers are causing that. Well, they were. I lost all the facet joint cartilage in my neck um, because I would sit in a room kind of cockeyed and be really interactive with my patients and want to shake my head a lot. So I wore away my cartilage for the love of my patients. <laughs> and honestly, like everything else, it happened for a reason. So I was working 40 hours, which equals 50 hours in medicine because you're never done on time. And I was burning out. I had put on weight for the first time in my life. Like I used to be a string bean my whole life. And I wasn't balanced. And I was drinking too much at night, like a couple glasses of, you know, to try to bring it all down because it was chaos in the clinic. And I took five months off. Finally, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I had just opened our new clinic and we opened a new clinic in a new town. And I was in love with my patients because it was fabulous. But my neck, I was like, no, I took five months off. I did everything from like volunteering at an animal place and uh, an ayahuasca experience that helped change my life. And I finally, for the first time in like my entire life, I think sat still. Unfortunately, it also meant rehabbing the neck and injections and pain. And, um, but I came back to work with correct ergo and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't carry a panel of 2000 patients. I am tired. Um, I can give you three days and I'd prefer nights because it works better for me and I'll do urgent care. And it just all worked. And I came back and was able to do that and feel more balanced. And so again, all the bad things that happen in life often have this silver lining for me. I don't know if it works that way for everybody. So you went into the sex stuff. Oh, so leading to that. So yes, at that same time, I was like, what else do I want to do? Like, I love medicine, but medicine's fucking broken, right? Um, We can go into that, but like medicine systems are broken. Finally, with COVID, more and more people are like, well, systems don't seem to be working really well. As medical people, we've known that from like the get-go. So I started thinking about what else I wanted to do. And I've always been interested in dating sex relationships. And I already was talking to all of my patients about this stuff. They always said, it seems like you're just so non-judgy and you, you normally, you make all these things normal. And so, you know, normalizing things for people and not making them scared because there's always that one more thing at the end of an appointment, like, oh, but can I ask you this one more thing? And 90% of the time it has to do with genitals (laughs) or the rectal area because they don't feel comfortable. And how sad is that? You go to your doctor and you don't feel comfortable talking about these things because we've taught it's a shameful thing, right? So I took a sexology program and I thought, you know, because I just want to have a little more fun with it. And it is fun. My favorite story, I had this couple in their like 50s, Hispanic couple. So in Spanish, in 40 minutes on the Zoom together, um, we were able to figure out what was wrong. They're like, she doesn't want to have sex with me anymore. They've been together for years, right? And they're sitting next to each other, kind of poopy. You can just tell not really liking each other in the moment. And by the time we were done, they're elbowing each other and winking and smiling. And I could figure it out right away. He's like, he lost his job and he's home all the time. And he's driving her fucking crazy. 
Of course, she doesn't want to have sex with him. I was like, hon, maybe you need to go find your friends and get back to work part-time. And she'll be probably more open to like wanting your advances again. But you're you're kind of like all over her. Of course, I said it in a very professional, nice way. And and by the time we were done, they were so happy. And I thought- And you, this- you did this in Spanish, correct? Aren't you multilingual? Yeah, Spanish. Yeah. It's still hard. Some days I'm like, my Spanish brain doesn't want to turn on as well as it should. But yeah, I learned Spanish and pretty much in the clinic. I spent three weeks in Costa Rica. I got to go live with a family and do an immersion program, which really helped. Yeah. But learning other languages as you're older, hmm, hmm, not so easy. So I'm very happy that I get to do it. I, uh, because I, the, the other providers will send me patients with questions about erectile dysfunction and libido issues and sexual incompatibilities. And so for me, it breaks up the other parts because I love what I do, but it's not fucking easy. Again, medicine's broken. The finances are not enough to mean that the providers can see less patients, which means the patients get enough care. It's like this broken circle of doom. And as providers, we just want to try our hardest. What happens when you have to deliver some pretty intense news to a young person who, I mean, where did, especially somebody that says has a parent with them or something, you know, where, where does that fall? Like if to deliver STD news or pregnant. We're, we're a little bit manipulative as medical people. <laughs> three, three stories just popped into my head. One of uh, a lady was having her, uh, was getting there for her pap smear and she was going through domestic violence and we all knew it. It was in her chart and she was in there for her pap smear. And I said, do you want help? And she said, yeah. And her husband wanted to come in with her and we're like, no, you need to stay in the lobby. This is only for women kind of thing. Right. And we snuck her up the back stairs to news, which was Napa Emergency Women's Services, and kept telling him that we were running behind. And she got the, the help she needed. She was able to get in contact with them and figure out a plan. Um, and so we're, we're constantly manipulating things for the good of everybody. <laughs> so we often keep parents out of the room with teenagers. And I passed samples of birth control while the mom's running to the bathroom. I mean, we have to do these things because um, we're trying to take care of, do what's best for, for the patient, right? Um, once you I probably just blew some brains right there with passing birth control to, to teens. I'm sure there's people <laughs> listening going, What? 12 years old, you are allowed to go to any teenagers that might be listening to us to any clinic and it's completely confidential and your parents do not need to find out about it. The goal is to keep people from getting pregnant, to keep them from not having babies until they're ready. Right. Again, I look back, I'm like, damn lucky I didn't get pregnant or get STDs. Like my friend Gina drug me to birth, get birth control at like 15 where her sister had gone and they knew it was confidential. I feel like now more and more kids kind of know this. I had a 12-year-old and she was there because she had nausea and vomiting. So of course we sent her to leave a pee. And her dad, he said, her dad's like, I'll stay outside. He was a field worker, Spanish speaking only. Mom had died. Um, so just them. And she's in the room with me. And I go and I look, and the pregnancy test is positive. And I just oh still gets to me. I'm like, she's fucking 12 and she doesn't have her mom. And so, you know, you pull it together and you go in there and I said, you know, your test came back positive and she bursts into tears. I can't even take care of my cat. I only had sex once in a hot tub, like, you know, and I looked at her and I said, I, and I don't always do this. It depends on the kid, but I was like, can we pull your dad in and tell him now? Cause what was she going to do? She doesn't have a mom, you know? And she said, yes. And so we told dad and he handled it like a champ. Um, but it's brutal, right? Like this is the kind of day in the life of medicine where you're up and down and all around. The idea that kids think if I have sex standing up, if I have sex <laughs> in a hot tub, if I have sex on a day that ends with why I won't get pregnant. It's, <laughs> you know, yep. The, yep. The ignorance yep. uh, unfortunately leads to very damaging things for this. I mean, I can't imagine this, what that does to a psyche. Yeah, right. 12 years old. So either, I don't know what happened. Either she had an abortion or she kept it. And either way, that changed her entire life. Yeah. And then actually, it's not just young kids. So daily, so I'm um, now that I've uh, moved, I'm doing telehealth. So I'm, I'm working over the computer and the phone, which I love. And daily, I ask women, what's your birth control? Oh, nothing. Do you want to be pregnant? No. So it's it's not just young people. And I, I, my goal is always like, well, if you want a baby, have a baby. Oh, I know that. I mean, I'm constantly, my friends who are sexually active, I'm like, are you using condoms? Because I know they're not on the pill or whatever. And they're like, oh, no, you, I'm like, you're, look. It's Russian like, roulette, honey. At the very least, you're going to get pregnant. At the very worst, you're going to get an STD. Yeah, and yeah. it's not, it's not, um, it's just a matter of time. It's not. Yeah. 
if it's yeah. when it's like yeah. Russian roulette. You got lucky this time. Totally. And again, I'm so blessed that I got lucky. I don't know. Like yeah. the gods were shining on me because I was a little crazy at one point. And then, so I feel like. And also, I think that people don't understand too. And I just really want to get this point out there. Yeah. Asymptomatic people can pass sexually transmitted diseases yeah. without ever knowing they themselves yep. have an issue. 100%. It's so important. And every time I, I just yeah. had my, my panel done. Cause I was, I'd gone for my gynecological exam and she said, how long has it been since you've had a, a you know, a full panel workup on STDs? I said, Oh my God, it's been a while just cause I haven't had sex in a million years. And, uh, and work said, on that number. <laughs> no, I'm work on that. And she, she's like, well, I'm just going to run them just, just so you have sort of a, and now they do everything like back in the day you'd ask specifically for HIV and all that, but they just run all that stuff now. Yeah, they run it and I, I got to say that even though I knew I was fine, like watching those test results come back on my uh, portal, I was uh, like, Oh, goody. Oh, goody. <laughs> it's nerve wracking, right? Even when that's you a very valid, yes, that statement you made. So especially men with gonorrhea chlamydia often no signs, but if women get it, it can actually like destroy their fallopian tubes and mean that they can't have children. So well, yeah. HPV, HPV is deadly. Well, everybody's got HPV, but yeah, yes. But, but in some cases, oh, I had a patient with throat cancer who had HPV. Yeah, it's and and uh, cervical cancers. I mean, a couple of my friends just lost their mothers to that. It, you know, it's, it's yeah. The problem is, is I worry less about the ones you can't do anything about. If you had sex and you weren't vaccinated and were older, ninety nine percent of the population has HPV. And I think it's now like every two in four people have been exposed or carry herpes. So like those are they matter, but you can't do anything about it. But like syphilis, I had a patient who was in her seventies having all this weird neurological stuff. She had tertiary syphilis, which means she'd had it from a very young age, well, from whatever. And then it gets worse and then it gets worse and eventually it goes to the brain and causes neurological stuff. Yeah. So yeah, you want to catch these things because you often don't have symptoms until you have symptoms. But you also bring up a good point, something like herpes or something. I think that that doesn't mean your sex life is over. In fact, because of the statistics that so many people have that, as long as I think it's about the conversation always about the conversation. People can carry it. I had a guy come in three days before his wedding with an outbreak on his penis and he'd never had an outbreak before. And he said, I think she's going to think I was cheating. I've never had an outbreak before. I said, either of you could have been carrying it this whole time. You've been together a long time. It's a conversation, right? I mean, of course, stress, he was stressed about the wedding and stress can have that be your first outbreak. I thought I'd had an outbreak one time and then um, I didn't get to the doctor in time because you can swab it and see. And then the same thing happened. And I got that. I was like, all sad about it. I wasn't that freaked out. It was an ingrown hair. You know, as be, even as medical providers, we can freak out um, oh, yeah. about anything. But, um, but again, like, it is just a conversation. I unfortunately, 18 years, I've only had to one, tell one person that they're HIV positive. Can you believe that? Wow. So, and I check people all the time. I think I just had not caught that or, you know, I've gotten lucky. Of course, I'm at my house in Napa. So backstory, 2020 hits. I launched my sexology coaching business. I build a website, love coach Mara. I do all these pieces. I go around to all the doctor's offices on Valentine's day of 2020 with bags and chocolates and a little postcard. Like, here's what I'm going to be doing. Send me your patients. If they have any, you know, sex relationships questions. And then March of 2020 hits <laughs> and my dog gets himself meningitis and spends four days at UC Davis and comes out needing constant care and four-hour medicine around the clock. And I say to my boss, I think I need, I can't, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't abandon the clinic in the middle of a pandemic. And they said, go work at home. I was like, oh, we've been kind of working towards that as a clinic. We were setting some people up that were commuting to maybe be able to do that one day a week. So I started working at home. How did you go? How did you deal with the pandemic? How, I know you're about to tell me the HIV story, yes. but I, I, I just, just really quick. Can we well, let's do the HIV and then the, the pandemic as medical providers has been a lot. Um, the HIV thing was I'm, I'm working at my home office now in Napa. And I realized that I have to tell this person over the phone that they are HIV positive because nobody else is going to do it. And I can't say to him to drive into the clinic because he's just going to know automatically that something's wrong. And so luckily I called one of our doctors who, works in HIV and he walked me through it. And I got him scheduled that in three days at our clinic with the right doctor doing the right thing. Cause we have amazing people. And I had to call him, you know, young gay man who'd always been careful, had been on prep for a while, which is prophylaxis for HIV. I, I love starting people on that. It's like a magic pill. And he had gotten a new partner and they hadn't gotten tested and he was positive. He handled it really well. I did as I did well. Um, 
but being at home, you know, and, and I just got off the phone and I just was like, wow. So here I am in the very beginning of a global pandemic, having to tell somebody that they have HIV, which was our last pandemic. It was just super surreal, super surreal. Um, And the fact that he couldn't come into the clinic because we were half shut down because we were trying to keep people safe. So that was a doozy. And then moving on from there, you know, I'm working at home. You've lost all contact with, you know, we, we talk on the computer and we, I talk to my coworkers, but you have this group of people you work with daily that keep you sane. And all of a sudden I'm at home dealing with really sick patients. Right. Um, and hearing horror stories constantly of, you know, my parents just died in Mexico. Um, one thing after another, right. The, the COVID stories, they're all real. They were all happening. I got to hear it from home and I got to watch the waves. So my schedule, you know, we see about 22 people a day on our schedule for lucky, not for clinic and finances, but for our, our sanity, we'll have a couple of no shows. So anywhere from 18 to 22 patients. And when the waves would go up, all those patients would be sick. When the waves would come down, they would go down and trying to be a medical provider during that, like the dichotomy of watching the nurses and the doctors and not this always one. I just, I was crying so much. You're watching the news and I had to watch the news. I wanted to know what was going on out there, right? You're watching the doctors and the nurses with bleeding noses from their N95 masks with pictures on their chest. So their patients know who they are with, you know, gowns and gloves and goggles and face shields. And I know what that feels like because I put all that stuff on. And in the same moment, they're doing CPR and running around. And I know they're not peeing, they're not drinking water, they're not eating. And I would look in their eyes and I was like, oh my God, they're not okay, <laughs> right? The medical providers, they were just not okay. It was the, It's actually the same look that those Ukrainian moms have on their faces right now. That look in the eyes of, there's no control, we are screwed, this is not okay. And then I'd have, I'd turn on the news and watch all these people going to Sturgis, 200 deep and the parties in Florida and some of my own friends being like, well, it is what it is. And I'm like, it is not what it fucking is. (laughs) We need to all quit being individualistic. We need to pull together because the medical systems are going to crash. When my 90 year old dad needs to go to the hospital for something, he's not going to be able to go. Right. So I still feel really strongly. um, I'm working through it with my counselor. It was hard and it's still hard. Every time we get through a wave, I have about a month or so where I feel comfortable going and being a human, <laughs> yeah, like being a person. And yeah. then the wave goes back up and I feel like I do what I'm supposed to, which is tuck and tuck it in, duck and roll, right? Stay away from COVID. So it's been rough. It's been, and it's been rough on everybody I know. Yeah, I've had several coworkers call me and we, we luckily talk each other down and um, there's a word compassion fatigue. Have you heard that? Yeah. And so we already all felt that. We work at a clinic with people and patients that are super hard, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've almost been punched in the face because I told somebody they couldn't have their opiates. But at the same time, I helped contribute to the opiate crisis when I was a young provider because we gave everybody Norco for their back pain. We have hard jobs. And so we're already running on compassion fatigue. And you add this on top of it. Um, a new term came out, schadenfreude. Have you heard of that? Yes. So I hadn't heard of it, but I kept feeling it. And every so time for felt, those that don't sure it's what it means is basically you take joy in other people's misery. That's that, it. That's, that's about the most simple way to put it. That's exactly. And can you imagine as a medical provider who you're empathetic and your whole job is to help people. But when I'm on the phone with them and they're like, I don't need to be vaccinated. And in my head, I'm like, well, then just fucking die then. Like feeling that way is worse than anything else that's gone on because we're not supposed to feel that way. Right. It's created, it's actually created a whole lot of that in the world. Yes. It's very interesting. We're all working, trying to be more empathetic as a human race. And yet the human race keeps pulling the rug out from under us. Yes. Yes. By the way, really quickly, just to make a a note for those of you that are uh, in the, the LBGTQ plus community that are at a higher risk of HIV, please check out getting on prep. It's, it's uh, it, as, as she said, it's a lifesaver. <laughs> 99% effective against HIV, even if you have receptive anal sex. Yeah. People in high risk, prostitutes and other people take it as well. It's an amazing, it was like, I kept thinking someday we'll have a vaccine for HIV and the pill came out and I said, this is gold. Yeah. So LGBTQ plus and sex workers. Yeah. Get on the prep. Yeah. Get on the prep. And it doesn't discourage. We sort of like, please use condoms because otherwise oh, you're, swabbing, sure. you're swabbing your throat and your anus and your vaginal area for gonorrhea, chlamydia and all these other things. But HIV is the one that has the higher risk of causing health problems. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Where are you headed in life? What's what's your plan? What's your five-year plan, my dear? Why do you want to work for this company? <laughs> five-year plan is to keep working from home. I missed all my people, but then what I realized is that I was burnt out. Like I do better just being kind of left alone so I can focus on my patients. It also brought up a lot of guilt though. You know, you're sitting in your home office with your heater at your feet and your dogs in the other room and your cats and, and I, you know, and all my coworkers are masked up and doing it and the people in the hospitals are doing it. But I realized that I was already really tired of not having time to go pee and not having a healthy lunch. And, you know, so for me to balance working at home, I could do this forever. And the company I work for is badass. 50 years. When I started, there was one clinic and like 10 people. In 1974, they had like three people. One of them is still with the company. They just put a whole thing on her about Women's History Month. She was the receptionist and now she's been in charge of finances forever. 40 years at the company. I've been there 18 years and it's not perfect. There has been some seriously bad times where management and learning to, we went computerized. That changed the whole dynamic of medicine. Uh, But it's an amazing place with amazing people who just all really want to take good care of people. And my first medical director taught me right. He said, you do it right the first time and every time. And sometimes I want to kill him, Dr. Moore, if you're out there listening, because I'll be in here and I'll be, I'm working along. And all of a sudden I realized that I didn't order that patient's mammogram. And I'm like, well, I can wait till next time. And I'm like, no, I can't. I go back in and do what I'm supposed to do because he taught us the right way. I don't think I could continue to be a good medical provider within the clinic. So working from home is golden. I, um, I want to get more back into, um, we're doing the sexology work. You and I have started about talking. I have started talking about a podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to do that. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put our two minds together. Your vast experience medically and my zero experience socially, (laughs) and uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about everything under the sun. I'm really excited about that. I think it is gonna be freaking amazing. We even have a name. We have a name. We even have a name. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? So. I realized it's another serendipity story. So how many names do we go through? 50? We probably looked at a, a whole bunch. Yeah. yeah. And then I was like, are we there yet? It's my favorite. And you're like, I have a song by that title. And I was like, I had not looked at your music yet. So I was like, serendipity. Here we go yeah. again. To me, it really denotes what we're going to try and do. So are we there yet? Where is there? Everybody's yeah. there is different. For me, the there is really just being really whole with yourself, understanding yourself, being in the moment. And if everybody figured out their love languages and attachment styles and triggers and sexual likes and dislikes and sexual orientation, if you know yourself, you're going to meet the right person and you'll be authentic. And if they know themselves, you're, it's going to work easier, right? So yeah. helping, helping teaching people do all this is going to be like, yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm really excited. So the Are, Are We There Yet podcast, and we're aiming for May. Yes, we're aiming for May. I'm, I'm excited to get started. Mm-hmm. I think, and I liked our, I like what we were saying, which was um, essentially our bio or our mission statement. Two humans having the real conversations and raising the questions that we all have about where the there really is when it comes to dating, relationships, and sex. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it, it all just fell into place because you and I were meant to meet, honey. And, and you and I are so different. I think it's going to be an extraordinary conversation. And of course we'll have guests and things like that. So everyone, you heard it here first. So exciting. Yeah. Uh, yeah super exciting about it. I think be, but you do not have experience, honey. Our experiences are very different, which I think is like, I, I, I think that yeah. was being facetious. But yes. You have, you have your own vast experiences and you're much more philosophical. And, and I mean, you've interviewed everybody across the board from religion to, so you're constantly able to throw in the pieces that I don't have. Chris, for me, it's medicine, sexologist, person. <laughs> Try So honestly, for the next five years, I just want to be a person. <laughs> like, it's really hard to be a person and a medical provider, especially during a pandemic. So I'm trying to have fun and revisit all my old stomping grounds. I grew up in Guerneville, California. I go there as often as possible. It is the coolest little town. It is a river town and it is, it was a logging town eventually. So super eclectic. You've got the old school rednecks and loggers and the gay community came in and started businesses. And so a huge gay population, like, in the, you know, it's still got tight, my tight eye shirts. 
Uh, families bring their families all the time to come like canoe up. I, like, I love Northern California. It's that Northern California is an adventure yeah. in general. There's yeah. so much to see. Sebastopol where we met. It's yep. so cool. Yeah. I'm going to keep yeah. just exploring. That's on my front. What, what about you? What's your five-year plan? Keep moving forward as a human to try and figure out what I'm doing here, why I'm here and uh, finding my center and helping other people do the same. I think I always say I belong to the world and that for me, it's not really about me. It's about figuring out everybody else and how to help them. It sounds so weird, but it's like, as I learn things and I open up other people to learning things, we're all heading towards it. I don't know. I don't know how to put it. Essentially you were born to be a teacher as well. Yeah. I mean, I think so. My numerology says I'm a teacher. Ah, see. I'm a nine. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. I think that I, I enjoy a lot of, of knowledge. That is my thing. So I know a little bit about a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. And, but I also know that I don't know anything. So uh-huh. it's, it's a good place to be a curious mind. And uh-huh. I love it because you and I, have, again, we have such different ways of looking at things, but we both, I feel, have very similar personality traits in that we want, we're loving and empathetic and we want to help people and help ourselves as well. Yeah, all of the above. Yeah. And it is going to be fun because we're so different. Like one of us is multi-orgasmic at times. One of us struggles with that. Like everything, you know, sex early, sex later, like everything is different. We're going to have such fun conversations. I can't wait. Everyone right now is like, Who, which one? <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that one for when we talk about the big O. Right, now, now we've left a cliffhanger for people to know. I didn't even realize I was cliffhanging it. See, you're good. And, and Miss Susan here, you are amazing because you're going to teach me all about the podcasting and the technical and the, I, my, uh, my least favorite part when I launched my coaching business. So actually, again, COVID came along and it happened for a reason is I don't love the social media. I don't love being on yeah, a computer after 30 Nobody does. Uh, yeah. For me though, after 30 hours on a computer with patients, I'm like done with the computer. Done. Yeah. Like, yeah. like it makes me physically sick sometimes. I need to go outside and see trees and water. And so yeah. the fact that you have that skill is amazing. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a skill, but I certainly have practice. It's, yeah. you know, it's been if you listen to Hey Human at the beginning of Hey Human, it was. <laughs> I've never I'm go back and listen to your first one. I should have done that. The, sound, the sound quality is not great, but you know, I learned as I went and it's still not perfect. I mean, I'm sitting inside my, again, my clothing closet because I don't have another space right now that is so great for absorbing sound and sound is everything on a podcast. I know I just ordered my microphone, so that'll be fun. Yay. We'll have better I'm sound excited. next time we talk. Well, I love you so much. Thank you. Tell people how to find you. I love you to pieces. Uh, you can find me at email, lovecoachmara at gmail. And I have a website that I haven't touched in a while, uh, lovecoachmara.com. And you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at lovecoachmara. But again, I just haven't been, you know, it's been several years since I've Two years? Yeah. A couple of years since I put energy into it. And now we're going in this direction, which again, serendipity. I wanted to work on this and put this information out into the world. And what better way than to just talk with you and do it? Yeah. I love it. I love it. And just a clarification, it's not email love coach Mara. It's your email is lovecoachmara at gmail.com. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. (laughs) I love you. I hope you have a fabulous day. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Take care, everyone. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.